we're wrapping up our study on the book of Colossians. So turn with me to Colossians 4 for one last time until the next time we talk about Colossians, which who knows when that will be. But we're going to wrap up Colossians with a couple of the final things that Paul writes to this church. Um, so read with me in verses four th- or 15 through 18 of Colossians 4. It says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause, it, or cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. And the salutation, or the salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you, amen, written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. So this is how Paul ends his letter to the Colossians. This is how he chooses to wrap up the discussion. First, by making sure that the letter is shared with the church of the Laodiceans. And second, by mentioning to this guy Archippus that he needs to take heed to the ministry that he's received in the Lord so he fulfills it. And tonight I want to look at those two things. Uh, but while we're doing that, you know, I want each of us to consider what our wrap-up needs to be on this discussion through Colossians. And that's why I titled it, What, what is Your uh, Colossians wrap-up. And luckily, by looking at these two things in this passage, we can remind ourselves of the things that we've been learning throughout this book. So first, I want to look at at this mention of the church of the Laodiceans. Are you guys ready for a Bible study tonight? Because this is a a Bible study that takes a lot longer than we have time for, Uh, but we're going to do it anyways. Um, That might have made you nervous. We'll still get done on time. Don't worry. So the first point here is your Laodicea, and that's verses, what we see in verses 15 through 16. At first glance, it might seem like a small, simple thing. Paul's just asking that this letter that he wrote to the Colossians also be read to the church of the Laodiceans. Uh, but a mention of Laodicea in Scripture is particularly special for us, Christians living in the world today. And tonight, hopefully, we prove that to you. Because understanding that can help us get a better handle on just how applicable what Paul wrote to the Colossians is to us today. So to get that understanding, I want to look at the three applications of Scripture, again, about Laodicea. So first, let's look at Laodicea historically. That's letter A, historically. Because in this case, the historical application is the simplest one. Like I said, Paul wanted this letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae to be read to the church in Laodicea, the city just down the road. And this, is a, and this is actually the third time that he mentions this church in the book of Colossians. We saw it in Colossians 2, 1, where he says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And then again in Colossians four thirteen, when Paul is talking about Epaphras, the guy we talked about last week, He says, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. So Laodicea is popping up a couple different places. And historically, Laodicea was a real place. It was a city that was close to Colossae. It was just down the road. And there was a real church there in that city, just like there was a real church in Colossae. Nothing nothing too groundbreaking here. So when Paul said that he wanted this letter, or he wanted this letter read to the church of the Laodiceans, He simply meant that he wanted someone to take the letter to the next town over and read it to the church that was there. All right. But the reason why a mention of Laodicea is so important for us today comes into play when we understand Laodicea doctrinally. And that's letter B, doctrinally. 
And remember, when I say something there that we need to understand something doctrinally, I just mean we have to understand what God is pointing to. What's he trying to teach us? What's he trying to show us about the future? What's he foreshadowing? Questions like that are what we're trying to answer when we examine a passage or topic from a doctrinal perspective. We take other parts of scripture where something's mentioned and put it together with what we're reading here. We fit them together with this passage to try to gain a full understanding of what God's referring to. So when we see Laodicea or Laodiceans being mentioned in the book of Revelation, we need to look at what's going on there and see how that fits with what we're looking at here in Colossians. And we see the church of the Laodiceans show up in Revelation 3, chapter 3. Um, But before we look at that, we need to get a broad and general understanding of the book of Revelation. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you'd realize that's a little ridiculous to try to get a broad, even a broad understanding of the entire book here in one night. Um, And please, you know, remember we're talking about a very broad and very general understanding, so I'm not getting into the details and stuff like that. We just don't have time to do that tonight. There are people who've devoted their entire lives to studying the book of Revelation and the prophecies that are found in it, so we're not going to get a thorough study in one night. Um, But I think we can get at least a general idea about how the book is structured, at least enough to help us understand this church of the Laodiceans. So if you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it was, you see it was written by the apostle John after he was captured and exiled. Most, if not all, of the other apostles had already been dead by this point in history. And the best guess anyone has on when it was written was around AD 96. So you're talking like 60-some years after after Christ left the earth. Uh, So take a look at Revelation 1, verses 9 through 10. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So John was in Patmos, that's where he was exiled to, but he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And if you track the phrase the Lord's day or the day of the Lord through scripture, you're going to quickly find out that that's a clear reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 46.10, for example, describes the day of the Lord as a day of vengeance, where his sword devours his enemies. There's a lot of blood in mentions of, of the day of the Lord. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of references to the day of the Lord just like this. Um, And I'll leave it to you to find them. You just look up the day of the Lord or the Lord's day in scripture and you can find dozens or hundreds of references. So the Lord's day is not just Sunday when we come to church. I know we might hear people call Sunday the Lord's day. It's like, well, it's the Lord's day. I'm going to church today. But that's not what the Bible's referring to when it says the Lord's day. At least I hope not. That would be a messy trip to church. (laughs) So understanding that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day helps us understand when John was actually writing the book of Revelation. He was writing it on the Lord's day. He was writing it from the second coming of Christ, from the future, from something that hasn't happened yet. Now, how exactly that works? I don't know. Did God show him the future in a vision? Maybe. Did God teleport him to the future? Maybe. Heck, there's even a conversation between Jesus, John, and Peter in John 21 that'll make you wonder whether or not John ever died, meaning it might make you wonder about the possibility that John never died and just lived throughout history until the future and then wrote the book of Revelation from there. Seriously, it's a weird conversation. Go check it out for yourself. 
So I don't know how John was writing from the perspective of the future. We just know he was writing it from the Lord's day, the second coming of Christ. And this is incredibly important when we see what John was told to write about in Revelation 1.19. He's commanded, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So while he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John was told to write about the things which he has seen that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, and the things which shall, shall be hereafter, that's the future. So while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he was told to write about the past, present, and future. So the present is the Lord's day. That's when he was writing. It's the rapture. It's the tribulation. It's the second coming of Christ. It's the day of the Lord. And he shall, and, and, and you know, into the millennial kingdom. He spends the majority of the book covering those things. The future, that's the continuation of the millennial kingdom of Christ, the earth, eternity, future. He spends the end of the book talking about those things. But the past, the things which, he ha- which thou hast seen, that's referring to the time around AD 96 when he was writing the book, or when, when he started the book, and the end of the church age when the rapture happens because he was writing from the day of the Lord. And that's what you see him doing in chapters 2 and 3. He's, he's writing about the past. You find in chapters 2 and 3, seven letters written to seven churches. And you don't find the church mentioned in Revelation after you get to chapter 4 because the church doesn't go through the tribulation, which is what he spends the bulk of the book talking about. It's for the nation of Israel. It's for the Jews. Now, the church experience is something like John went through at the beginning of chapter 4. Revelation 4.1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So a door in heaven opens. A voice that sounds like a trumpet tells him to come up hither. Well, if you dig through the details of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, It's clear that what John's describing is the rapture of the church when Jesus calls us with a voice like a trumpet and tells us to come up to him. It's the beginning of the Lord's day. Where, or when, rather, that John is is writing from. And chapters 4 through 19 go on to describe the tribulation and the events that go on in heaven during the tribulation. And in chapter 19, heaven opens again. So heaven opens in chapter 4, verse 1, and then, Revelation 19, heaven opens again, and instead of someone going up, this time somebody comes down. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God talking about Jesus Christ, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Man, Jesus comes back to get what's rightfully his. And man, that truly is the day of the Lord. That's the day of Jesus Christ. And so two times in the book of Revelation, heaven opens. The first time in chapter four, John is, John is called up. And we understand that the church is called up. That's the rapture of the church. And the second time in chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes down with his armies. 
And those two openings, those set for us the separation between John's past, present, and future when he's writing the book of Revelation. And because John wrote about the tribulation in the middle part between those two openings, and because he wrote about the millennial kingdom of Christ and beyond in the ND part over here, those two chapters at the beginning uh, where he was writing to churches, that's all we have left. So we know that's when he was writing about the past, the things that he has seen. Unless you want to assume that he didn't do what Jesus told him when he said, write about the things which thou hast seen. He was writing about the church age, which would, set, which would be his past from his position in our future. He was writing about the time that you and I are living in right now. So to help you out a bit, I put on your sheet a basic outline of the book of Revelation. And chapter one was just an introduction where he's setting the stage for the entire book. We looked at a few passages there. Then chapters two through three are talking about the church age, and chapters four through 19 are talking about the tribulation of the nation of Israel. And then chapters 20 through 22 are the millennial kingdom and eternity future. And the church of Laodicean shows up in chapter three, a part written about the church age. And what's particularly interesting about these seven letters to seven churches is that each letter seems to describe a different period of church history. And sure, each of these churches would have been real churches in real cities back in AD 96 uh, when, when, when John lived. But if you study church history, which we're not going to do tonight, by the way, don't worry about that, you'll find that each of these letters will sequentially and chronologically describe how the church in general looked at different points throughout history. We don't have the time to dig into that tonight. But what I'm saying will hopefully make sense when we look at what God has to say uh, to the church of the Laodiceans, the very last of these seven churches that are mentioned. Uh, Revelation 3, I'll just read verses four through 20, or 14 through 22. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus has got some words to say to this church. Verse 15, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot or cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be, be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and be zealous therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And man, this perfectly describes Christianity in our world today. Christianity is full of a bunch of dinguses who are lukewarm. They, they try to keep one foot in their walk, Christian walk with God, and they try to keep the other foot in the world. And God says that makes him sick. He wants to spew. And you know, I used to think that that was like, like a spit take when you're drinking water or something and someone makes you laugh. You just spew it out. Like, well, biblically speaking, spew is puking. Um, so it, it, it makes God sick. Because we're rich and increased with goods, we think we're doing okay. But we can't see that we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We don't have to suffer persecution for our faith, generally speaking. 
the way that other Christians had to at different points in time. And because of that, we get really comfortable and we think we're doing okay. All the while, Jesus is standing at the door, knocking, and just waiting for someone to open up and let him in. They're comfortable living their own lives without Jesus there, and he wants to be a part of it, but, but nobody hears, nobody listens. Doesn't that sound familiar? Man, even the name Laodicea means civil rights. So it perfectly describes the general state of Christianity in our world today. And because of that, among other reasons, we believe that we're currently living in the final period of the church age before Jesus returns and raptures us up. That doesn't mean we pretend to know when that's going to happen. It just means that we believe it's soon and it could happen anytime. Nothing else needs to happen to fulfill prophecy uh, before the end. And because we believe that we're living in the Laodicean period of the church age, that very last time before the rapture happens, man, we, we like to take special care and attention when we see Laodicea mentioned <coughs> mentioned elsewhere, like in Colossians. So let's look at Laodicea practically in letter C. And hopefully at this point, uh, practically, this one's obvious. Because we believe the term Laodicea is used to describe the period of time we're living in right now, and because we believe that the problem's Revelation 3 ascribes to the Laodiceans also apply to us in general today. We believe that when Paul asked the Colossians to make sure the members of the church of the Laodiceans be made aware of the things in the letter, man, we should pay special attention to make sure we're aware of what he's writing and take it to heart. Because yes, Paul was referring to the actual church that was in the actual city of Laodicea. And yes, we should pay attention to the things Paul was writing because he was writing them to New Testament Christians in New Testament churches. But the fact that Laodiceans are mentioned, well, that's just one more thing that points to the information in this book as being critical for us to understand and live by. So man, let's hit some of the highlights, some of the practical highlights that we've seen in this book. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which in my mind is like the key passage of this entire book. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And we talked about that. We need to have the right perspective for our own lives. We need to be seeking those things which are above. That's where our affection should be. And we talked about those things are the word of God and the souls of men, the two things that will last beyond our physical lives, the things that can last for eternity. Those are the things our lives should be focused on right now because everything else will eventually be a waste of time. And to help us with that, we have to recognize that we are dead. Jesus Christ is our life now. He gave us his life, and in return, if you're saved, you said, take my life, I want your life. So our life is meaningless. He is our life. So we ought to be living for him now rather than ourselves. The Laodiceans of Revelation 3 are so concerned with all the stuff they have they think that they're rich and increased with goods, but if they'd open their eyes, they'd realize they're actually poor and blind and naked because they're wasting their time on stuff that doesn't matter. The same is true of us when we pursue the things of this world rather than focusing on the things above. And that plays out in several ways in your life. And we talked about them. A primary way this plays out is, th us, is through us having the right perspectives on our relationships with one another. How we treat one another ought to demonstrate our love and devotion for Christ. Colossians 3, 8 through 14 says, but now, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, 
and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Whether there is, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And there's a lot in there, and we unpacked a lot of it. And look, because we're all given, because we've all given ourselves and our lives over to Christ, we're family now. We have kinship in that. And we've got to, and we've got work that we need to do together. So there's no place, there's no place for petty squabbles and disagreements to take root and get in the way of our fellowship with one another. Sure, stuff is going to happen. People are going to make you mad. But rather than acting in anger, wrath, and malice, we should be acting in kindness, humbleness, and forgiveness. Rather than focusing solely on ourselves, as is the case with the Laodiceans, man, we need to open our eyes and see how our actions are affecting one another. And we need to start taking actions that work to edify one another rather than than hurt each other. Did someone do something wrong to you? Well, rather than take revenge on them, how about you forgive them instead, the way Christ forgave you? Did someone say something you didn't like or something that bothered you? Rather than closing them out of your life, how about you talk to them about it instead? Learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt and you'll figure out real quick that most of the time somebody bugs you, they didn't actually mean to. And if you took the time to actually talk to them about it, I bet you they'd try to keep it from happening again. Colossians is clear. Our relationships with one another and our fellowship together is important, not only for our own unity in carrying out the Great Commission, but also for our testimony's sake when someone on the outside sees how we treat one another. Man, they're not gonna see the love of Christ if they look at you and you're bickering with everybody around you. Let's look at one more practical takeaway from Colossians. Uh, Colossians 3, 17 says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And this idea is repeated in verse 13, or 23. It says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And this is so simple, I almost feel silly bringing it up again. But then I realize it's something we all struggle with, myself included. Everything we do should be done for the Lord. So we should see every opportunity we have in life to be a representative of Jesus Christ, his ambassador to the dark, evil world that we live in. The Laodiceans in Revelation 3 don't even notice Jesus knocking on their door. And he's knocking on your door, asking you to let him into your life. Not just so he can save you, but so he can use you in your life to bring others to him. We need to realize that he's always knocking. And all we have to do is let him, er, to let him in is open the door and allow him to start using the events of our life for his glory. Because our life is Christ. He is our life. Whether that means watching for conversations to turn into opportunities to share the gospel, or whether that means keeping a good testimony to the other people that we work with so that we can share the gospel with them later, or whether that means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to put them before ourselves so we can build them up in the Lord. And everything we, should, we do should be for the Lord because he's our life. So our lives ought to demonstrate that regardless of the specific things we're doing. We all live different lives, but man, we're not living life alone. We have each other. And people should be able to look at us and understand the love that we have for Christ and the love that he has for us. So practically, there's a lot we talked about in Colossians. And my prayer is that each of us will do what we need to do to get our lives more in line with how God wants us to be living them. And that's especially true because of God's description of the Laodiceans in Revelation 3 
and his distaste for the way they, they chose to live. Man, don't let that be true of you. Because if we can live the way Paul describes in Colossians, we're not going to be lukewarm. We're going to be on fire for God. And then when we're on fire for God, man, he can really start to use us to do some amazing things in people's lives. So it's no surprise that living the way we studied in Colossians 3 is the solution to not ending up like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. And let's end our study in Colossians with, with point number two, your ministry. And this is just the last little note on Paul's list before he officially signs off and says, see you later. Uh, Colossians 4.17, he writes, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. And, you know, Archippus is another one of those guys who shows up other places in Scripture. And, and so we know from elsewhere in Scripture that he was just another guy who served the Lord with Paul. Philemon 1-2 says, And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. So Paul calls him a fellow soldier, meaning much of what we talked about last week about being a fellow prisoner and a fellow laborer can be applied to him as well. So we don't have to rehash all that tonight. But what I think we need to take away from Archippus is exactly what Paul wrote to him in Colossians. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord and fulfill it. Fulfill that ministry. And hopefully you'll remember from a month or so ago when we had our discussion on pronouns, because Paul writes to take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. We know that thou is a singular pronoun. So Paul is talking directly to Archippus. He's not speaking in the plural in this case. So after talking to the entire church about their ministry together and working together to make sure they're accomplishing God's mission, at the very end of his letter, he tells one guy, to specifically fulfill his own personal ministry that he's received in the Lord. And this is an important note to end on. We don't need to read the whole thing, but 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27, likens a church body to a human body because we understand how human bodies work. They're made up of a bunch of different body parts and each body part has its own job to do. So when you decide to stand up and walk across the room, uh, you know, you're giving your whole body one job to do. You want to get from point A to point B. But doing that, to accomplish that, your body parts have each have their own jobs to do that th so that the one job gets done. You know, your hands have to brace your weight as you stand up, and as you get older, they have to brace more weight as you stand up. Your legs have to stand you upright. Your eyes have to look where you're going so you don't trip on anything. Your knees have to bend as your legs move. Your feet have to plant. Your body in motion is a lot of moving parts. Well, the same is true of a local church. And the trick is figuring out what your role is gonna be in the ministry of your local church. Because if you're not doing anything, you're just dead weight that isn't helping the church body reach the world with evangelism and discipleship. That doesn't mean I'm telling you to leave, but man, it's time to get busy. We've been talking a lot through Colossians about our ministry together, but don't lose sight of what your particular part in that is, whatever that might be. What does God have you doing right now? Where does God have you serving right now? Where does God have you learning and growing right now? Well, take heed to that and fulfill it. That doesn't mean you have to be stuck serving in the same role forever. It just means that you're taking your current ministry responsibilities seriously and you're open to God directing you to something else or somewhere else down the road. 
First Thessalonians 5, 4 through 7 says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So again, that's pointing at the future. That day could overtake you as a thief if you're not paying attention for it. Verse 5, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And like we talked about, we believe we're living in the final period of church history. That day is approaching. The day of the Lord is approaching. So we firmly believe we're running out of time to get our jobs done for the Lord. But man, sometimes we get stuck sleeping. And shame on us if we're sleeping and and he comes back and sees us sleeping when, when we have a job to do and we need to get busy. He's coming back soon. Don't let him catch you sleeping. We all need to wake up and figure out what he wants us to be doing and serve him and, and, and to serve our local church body right now and, and just continue that until he comes back. And look, I can't be the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit, so he can do the Holy Spirit's job. So I can't tell you what you need to do. I can't just pick a role for you and say, hey, go do that. That said, if you're not sure what you should be doing right now, I'd be more than happy to help you figure that out. I don't have all the answers, but God does. So let's ask him to continue guiding and directing us so we can each do our own role. And when we each do our role, man, the church gets its job done. It gets up and walks across the room where it needs to be. And when the church does its job, man, God gets glorified and people get saved. A difference is made in eternity, a very real difference, if we're willing to serve the Lord right now. So as we wrap up Colossians, man, what is your wrap-up? What do you need to do so that your life and ministry are more in line with what Scripture says than than you are right now? What do you need to do so that you and this church can be more effective at getting the Great Commission done? Do you need to commit to your own personal growth through learning or MTT or something like that? Do you need to commit to your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can be a positive force in their life so that they can be more edified because of you? Do you need to commit to actually finding a role that you can start serving in ministry? Or do you need to just commit to double down on what God has you already doing so you can bring more glory to him and serve him more effectively? That's why I titled this message, Your Colossians Wrap-Up. Because I can't, I can't tell you what your main takeaway needs to be. We're not in high school anymore. But finishing our study of a book of, of the Bible, man, it provides a great opportunity to examine yourself and what you learned and how to apply it to your life so you can figure out what needs to be done and and what you need to do moving forward. So, man, let's just each ask God to make that clear to us tonight um, as we finish up this book. God, I thank you so much, man, just for the clarity of your word and just how if we are careful to to look at different topics mentioned at different times in Scripture that we can start to piece things together and get an understanding of, of where we're at and where we're living right now, and we can learn some things about the time and period of time we're living in and uh, the struggles that, that Christians have in general. And God, you write that if any man is an overcomer, then they get to sit in your lap in your throne. And man, I just, I take that to heart because that's a big deal. Someone sitting in your throne has authority and you're, you're offering us a chance to, to get rewarded for, for the service that you deserve. You deserve everything from us and, and we deserve nothing. You've already given us far more than we could deserve. But man, the hope of, of reward and the hope of rejoicing with you in your glory. Um, man, it just, it just, it serves as motivation. And I pray that each of us would figure out how best we fit into that picture and 
we can figure out what it is we need to do moving forward so that we can serve you more effectively and so that, uh, man, this body, the well and, and FBC in general, can, can just reach the world with the gospel. We can walk across the street and share the gospel and we can make disciples and we can send people to all sorts of different places to just get your mission done and get your job done. And God, I pray that we'd make that our life. I pray that we would take that seriously and understand what our role is in that. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.